So if you haven't already done so, please open up your Bibles to the letter of Jude. Now, I want you to think a minute about what kind of what makes you sick in many times. How many viruses do you think there are on planet Earth? Got a guess? A lot. Uh, a 2020 National Geographic article tries to answer that question. I don't know how they verify this, but but just listen. An estimated 10 nonillion viruses exist on our planet. Nonillion is a one with 30 zeros behind it. Okay? A million has six zeros. A billion has nine zeros. A trillion has 12 zeros. It gives you an idea. How many? I don't know how they know that, but they felt confident enough to publish that in National Geographic. And viruses infiltrate every part of our lives. I saw a brief article in a, in a, a, a sandstorm in the Middle East drives viruses way up into the stratosphere. Okay? They don't survive on their own. They need a host. They need a host to survive. And they adapt and they oftentimes make that host sick, which is why we often get sick. It's not the only reason. That's just viruses. I don't know how many bacteria there are. Or, and even the cells in our bodies, which sometimes, which go haywire and create cancer. So you've got all this going on in our lives. How do we defend ourselves against some of this? Well, some people realizing, you know, the, just the amount of viruses and bacteria out there go berserkers and they try to create a sterile environment like Howard Hughes years, many years ago. And it's just impossible. It is absolutely impossible to live in a sterile environment. It's sort of like it's impossible to remove yourself from false teachers in the times in which we live. You just can't do it. So you got to figure out a different strategy. What do we do health-wise? Well, you try to eat healthy. You perhaps take some vitamins. You exercise. You try to get a proper amount of sleep. All these things are important to a healthy life. Doesn't guarantee it, obviously, in this fallen world. But but those are the things you do to, to try to keep yourself healthy. Well, there are things that God has for us to do in a spiritual sense that are much more effective than anything we can do in a physical sense. So the passage we're going to look at today, God gives us a, a, a kind of a strategy, he gives us disciplines to put into our life that are 100% effective. If you do these, you are not going to be led astray by false teachers at all, 100%. And because it's God's word, it's, it's what he guarantees. And, and so we want to turn to his, to his word to, to hear what his word says. Remember the big picture of Jude is that Jude's writing to earnestly, that we would earnestly contend for the faith. And, and the way that Jude writes that, it's his purpose statement, really, for the letter. But it's, it's not really a command. It's, it's sort of a command, it's, it, but it's not written as a, a direct command to contend earnestly for the faith. But it's applied from the context. But at the end of his letter, after he's told us all about the false teachers and about our about his desire to write, to urge us to contend earnestly for the faith, he is laying out verse by verse imperatives, commands for us to do. What do we do in light of all these things? So this this is Jude's strategy for God's people to live in a healthy way in an environment where there are false teachers around and Last week we, we looked at remember. That's one of the imperatives. Remember what you are taught by the apostles. We live in an environment of, 
of false teachers. Remember who you are and remember who they are and and cling to the word. Remember what the apostles taught you. Today, the main idea is this. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. If you keep yourself in the love of God, you will never fall prey uh, to false teachers. Let's read uh, Jude 17. Um, I'll just begin reading at Jude 17 and then continue uh, through verse 21 just to give uh, us context. Today we're going to be looking at verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, must remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Now, first I want to point out that in in verse 20, Jude is is returning to talk about believers. he's, He's... Talking to believers and then some about false teachers. You see that we saw that in verse verse 17. He says, but you, beloved. And then and then in verses 18 and 19, he, he gives one last look at the, the, the ugly, ungodly characteristics of the false teachers. And then in verse 20, he returns again to talk to believers, to those he was writing to and to us as believers. But you, beloved, same thing, but you, beloved. He's, he's reinforcing the fact that he's speaking to the believers He's reinforcing the fact that they are beloved. That is, beloved is implying. If you go back to verse 1, it's in Jude. Jude says, beloved. Um, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So Jude is intentionally using that word beloved to draw us back to remember what he said in the first verse. Beloved by God the Father. Right? So Jude is speaking to believers here in verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved. Now, Jude lays out for us several things here that we need to point out one by one. Um, and, and I want to just, just say that these instructions are in, intended to guide us and to provide the protection that we need against false teachers. And so there's going to be four, basically four points to today's message. But the main thrust is this. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, I want to start with verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, why would I do that? Let me explain to you. So, not only are we going to look at what Jude says, but I want to help teach you how to study your Bible. This is an excellent passage to do that. So, what Jude does is give us a main main, um, thrust or a main command. And and to understand that, we have to remember some English grammar. And I know most of you um, haven't had... English grammar since high school, and when you were finished with it, you were glad, and you probably forgot a lot of that you knew. I was exactly the same way until God saved me, and I began studying the Bible, and I realized I actually need English grammar in order to understand my Bible properly. It's actually a very useful tool, right? And you don't have to have you don't have to know Greek to understand the Bible. You just need to understand your English Bible. Right? So let's let's talk a little bit of grammar just for a moment. Right? A sentence, a sentence is a collection of words that expresses a, a complete thought. Right? It can be long or it can be short, but it expresses a complete thought. Right? 
So verses 20 and 21 are one sentence, right? In the Greek and in English. That's not always true, but it is true in this particular text. Now, with a sentence, you've got a verb, and a verb carries out the particular action, right? Um, or it expresses a thought. It doesn't always carry out an action, but it expresses uh, 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 some truth um, or uh, some something to think on, ponder on, or something to do. And then you've got some interesting things called participles. And in English, you can get confused with gerunds, and we won't go into that. But participles look like verbs, but they have ing at the end of them. That's the present participle. Present participles are not verbs. They look like verbs and somewhat act like verbs and somewhat act uh, in another way. But but the point I'm trying to make here is that, is that you can look at your Bible and point out the participles. So so where are the participles? Right? Verse 20, building from, from the verb build, building. Then later in verse 20, praying from the verb pray. Right? And then in verse 21, waiting. From the verb wait. So you've got three participles. Where's the main verb? Verse 21. Keep. Keep. So by, by looking and paying attention to this, you yourself can see that the main idea, although there's, there's the, the, the sentence is longer than, than a simple sentence, you can still kind of parse it out and look and see what's the main idea that Jude is trying to convey. And the main idea he's trying to convey is that to keep yourselves in the love of God. The participles come into this and they tell you by what means. Like, how do you keep yourself in the love of God? That's what Jude is doing with the participles, right? It, he's giving you the, the means by which to keep yourselves in the love of God. So enough with the, with, with the grammar lesson, right? Just helping you to understand your Bible. Um, what does the word keep mean? The word Keep here, it means the same thing as it does in verse 1, right? I already read it, but I'll read it again. Uh, when Jude is addressing his readers in his opening, he says, To those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ. And Jude is going to return again to the idea of being kept in verse 24. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, right? there at the end, right? Now the, the word, that Jude uses in verse 24 is a synonym. It's not the exact same Greek word, although it's the same English word because they are synonyms in this particular context. But it's an idea that Jude is kind of laced throughout this. The angels did not keep their own domain. Verse 6, the angels did not keep. Same kind of word. They did not keep. We are kept for Christ and God is able to keep us from stumbling. But here, Jude's Use is to keep yourselves in the love of God. So what does the word keep mean? It means to preserve or persevere or to stand firm in a thing. The, the, the word here um, conveys the duty of watchful care. Watchful care. Um, and this verb is a, an imperative. Right? So again, as a main verb, it's, just, it's not just the main verb, it is an imperative, meaning it's a command. And it's given in the second person plural. He's not speaking just to one individual. He's speaking to his readers, 
And by application, because the Holy Spirit authored this book, he's speaking to all of us. Right? This is something that we're all given the responsibility to do. It's a directive that applies to all believers so long as we live in this age. Until our Lord comes, right, there will be false teachers. So it's something that we need to continue to do in this particular age. Now, it's interesting that Jude says here, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, let's talk a little bit about that. He's saying, keep yourselves. That's the clear object of the verb. That is what we are to be keeping. That's what we're preserving. That's what we are to be guarding with vigilance or paying attention to, exercising watchful care to yourselves. Again, it's not to yourself. This isn't saying become individualistic. He's not saying um, have focus solely on yourself. There is a, there's a responsibility here for each individual believer to, to guard and watch, but but also not just for themselves, but for others around them, for the, for the community of the church. So Jude writes this to to talk to, to give us a command that this is a, a individual but also a collective command that we all need to be carrying out to keep ourselves where where would it, where do we keep ourselves? Do we hide out in the hills, right, and put up gates and fortresses? And to keep all the false teachers out? Well, if they're only so simple, I guess we could do that. But that's not our Lord's commands. We are to be salt and light to the earth. And as long as we're salt and light to the earth and around unbelievers, there will be false teachers. So that's, that's our Lord's direction is to be in the world, but not of the world. He explains, Jude explains, that, that we are to keep ourselves in the love of God. Now, in, the, the preposition in, describes the realm of which we are to stand firm in. We are to preserve or keep ourselves in the realm of God's particular, like God's love. And we have to ask in this case, when you see the love of God, it could actually mean a couple different things, two, two major things in particular. It could mean, the love of God could mean our love for God, that is our subjective love, like we love him because he first loved us. So is that is that is the love that Jude is talking about? Is this talking about our responsive love back to God? Keep yourselves in the love of God? Or is he talking about the love of God objectively? That is God's love for us. Right? In this particular context, Jude seems to be arguing that this is keeping yourself in God's love for you. And not you just responding in, in love because he first loved you. And, and let me sh- show you some of, some of the reasons why we would say that. Um, believers are recipients of God's love. And we know that because Jude leads off with that. To those who are the called, beloved in God the Father. Beloved in God the Father. And we know from other passages that he's the one that first loved us. And throughout this passage, Jude is, is really emphasized, you know, love, uh, love of God for his people. You know, in verse 17, beloved, even in this own verse, in verse 21, I mean, verse 20, he says, but you, beloved. Right? So there's an emphasis on God's love for them. Right? So I think it makes makes good sense. And most most commentaries would also agree with this, that, that it's 
This is the love is speaking of the love that God has for us. So thus Judah is giving you a responsibility to keep yourselves in the sphere um, or realm of the love that God has for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So this is this is sort of like um, driving in a certain sense. When you're driving your car, you have a responsibility to stay in your lane. And you have to pay attention to stay in your lane. If you get distracted, you're going to drift out of your lane. If you, um, you know, look at something interesting alongside the road, what, what often happens, right? The car veers in the direction that you're looking. It, it just happens to, to 99% of the people who are drivers out there. So what Judah's saying is pay attention, stay in the lane where God placed you. Your designated lane of living is the love of God. Stay there in it. That, that's what Judah is, is saying. Um, one pastor explains it this way. He, sa- he says, the, to keep yourself in the sphere of God's love means this. It is the personal, individual responsibility of every believer to occupy and abide in the place of God's love. For it is the place where our hearts and minds are encouraged, enlightened, and garrisoned against the delusion and temptation of apostasy. Let me read the last part of that. For this is the place where our hearts and minds are encouraged, enlightened, and garrisoned against the delusion and temptation of apostasy, unquote. Now, some of you might be scratching your proverbial head because you're not doing it literally. Say, what do you mean, pastor, keep myself in the love of God, keeping yourselves in the love of God? I thought you said that it was God that kept me in his love and, and loved me. After all, God doesn't God love the elect unconditionally, right? And, and on top of that, we can look at verses 1 and 24, and what I've already read speaks about that we're kept for Jesus Christ. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, there's an emphasis, right, on the keeping, um, the, the keeping actions of God, of, of God's actions and keeping his people. So, so did, did, Jew just have a little bit of a, um, you know, an out of inspiration moment when he wrote this, when he says, you know, keep yourselves. Seems to be like contradictory to to other things that he has said and other scriptures he has said. But what we need to understand is this principle: when God ordains something, He then ordains the means to that. Give an example. From the Old Testament. When God promised the Israelites the land of Israel, He said, I'm going to give you that land. What did He ask them to do? They just had to stroll in and build cities, right? No. They had to do what? They had to go to battle. Now, the Lord said He would do the battling for them if they would worship Him and honor Him and glorify Him. But they still had to do it. But they wouldn't win it if it was all in their own energy and strength. They would completely lose, which they did that several times because of their sins against him. Okay. So that, that that's sort of what Jude is doing here. He's saying, keep yourself in the love of God. And we need to realize that that's our, our obligation. We need, to, we need to pay attention to stay in that lane, all the while realizing that our efforts to stay in that lane are going to be fruitless without God superintending in his providential and sovereign care 
to help us stay in that lane. So it's, it's ultimately God doing it, but you have a responsibility to play. This is not so different from what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. You can either listen or turn there if you'd like to, to see it for yourself. Philippians 2 verses 12 to 13. He says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, wait a minute. This is the Apostle Paul. This is the guy that says salvation is by grace, not by works. But here he's saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What's going on, Paul? It's the same same thing. And he, and he answers it in the context because he says, for, why do we do this? Why do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Your efforts to grow, in, and he's talking about sanctification, your efforts to grow in sanctification would be completely fruitless if God were not at work in you. But you are called to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Same concept that we're talking about in Jude. You have responsibility to keep yourself in the love of God. Yet, your efforts to do that would be completely fruitless, mine too, if it were not for God's work superintending, keeping you in his love. Where did they get this from? From Jesus. This kind of theology comes from Jesus. Uh, In John 15, verses 9 and 10, Jesus uses the same kind of pattern here. I'll just read that to you. You can follow along. John 15, verses 9 and 10. Jesus says this, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Notice that Jesus announces his love for the disciples. I have loved you, he says. I've loved you. Right? Even just as the Father has loved me, I have, I have also loved you. So he announces it. They knew that. But he announces it in this particular passage. And then he says what? Abide in my love. Well, I thought you loved us. I do. Abide in my love. Right? These things work together. It's what the Lord calls us to do. His disciples are to remain or to keep themselves in his love. And Jesus says in this context that, that we do that by, by uh, obedience to his commands. Now, that's not obedience in any sense that, ca- that results in our salvation. It's not an obedience that merits salvation at all. This is, this is wonderful in the, in the context to show this. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. That sort of sounds like a work salvation, sort of. But that's a misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying. Because look at the contrast that he gives there, or the or the similarity, really. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So you step back and you say, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the incarnate Son of God. But before he was incarnate, he was always the Son of God. From eternity, he was the Son of God. From eternity... We know that God is love. And love has to have an object to love, otherwise it can't love. So from eternity, the Trinity has has loved. 
The Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Spirit. There's an inter-Trinitarian relationship. One God, but three persons. And, and they have loved each other from eternity. They did not earn each other's love. They simply loved each other from eternity. And yet Jesus says, I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus himself sets the example of what it's like to abide in that love by being obedient to the commandments of his Father. By doing the Father's will, by accomplishing the mission that the Father sent him to do. There's another there's another uh, passage that, that speaks about this in, in John, John 10, verses 17 and 18. And I'll just read that to you. It, just, just remember that that long before the obedience happened, Jesus' obedience happened, the Father was loving Jesus. Ten, John 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, Jesus says. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one lays it down for me, but from myself. I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This commandment I have received from my Father. So even though he was loved from eternity, Jesus says, this is the reason my father loves me. That's not the only reason, but this is the reason my father loves me because I laid down my life to purchase the elect. That's what he's saying, to purchase his people. Perhaps one more example will help us understand um, better how God calls us to work with him in the work that God has said he will do. Uh, Turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. And I'll read verses 11 to 14. Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possessions, zealous for good works. Intermixed in here is is some very interesting um, truths. First of all, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. it's, It's his work. God's salvation is a work of his grace. But then that grace does what? It instructs us to, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires that we, live, that we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And then look at the end of verse 14, talking about Jesus. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession. So who's doing the purification? Who's doing, who, who is redeeming us from, all unlaw, uh, from lawlessness? That's our Lord's work but we're also called to work with him. Denying ungodliness and worldly desires, living sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. So this is something, you, if you look for it, you'll see it in many different portions of scripture where God declares something. He said, this is my work. I'm going to do it. And then sometimes in the same context or a little bit later, he's going to say, now you be obedient and follow that and do that. This is the Lord's doing. This is part of what Paul means when he says, you walk in the good works which God has prepared beforehand 
that you would, would that you would walk in them. You do those good works. Right? The good works are obeying his word in part. Not not only that, but you're obeying his word. You're doing what he said he would do. You're cooperating with him. And again, I say cooperate, but it's not an equal partnership. This is God. It's God's work from first to to last. From the beginning to the end, he gets all the glory. You're just called to cooperate. And your cooperation, like my cooperation, is imperfect. It's full of sin. And he's working all these things out for our good. But again, he gets all the glory. We can we can take absolutely no credit at all. So back to Jude. You are to keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, keeping yourself in the love of God is is like intentionally walking in the sunshine. So you feel the warmth of the sun. Get some vitamin D. It's healthy for us. So when you think about keeping yourselves in the love of God, think about walking in the sunshine. It's healthy. Now, that one pastor explained, as one pastor explained, you and I must remember that that the love, that God's love never changes, he says. But we must always be conscious of it to walk in the warmth of its glow. Another pastor adds this, the warning, adds, adds the warning that we must be alert to, to keep anything from clouding our consciousness of his love. That's an important thought. Part of keeping yourself in the love of God is, is, is not allowing this world and the cares and concerns of this world and the things of this world from clouding out our thoughts and our intentional keeping ourselves in the love of God. Remember that the fallen angels did not keep their own domain, but you, as the child of God, as beloved by God, you are to keep yourself in the realm where God has called you to serve him, and that is the realm of God's love. Now, committing yourself to the love of God, to keep to keeping yourself in the love of God is one thing, but knowing how to do it is uh, is another. And that's why that's why we're going to lead into the the rest of Jude. Um, in part, Jesus tells us, "If if you keep my commandments, you you will abide in my love." Right? So this is a similar thought to what Jude is telling us, but Jude gives us some specific details um, on how to do this. So to defend yourself against false teachers, you keep yourself in the love of God, keep yourselves in the love of God. But secondly, to defend yourselves against false teachers, you must be building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith. So go back to verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. So the word building is that participle we talked about in the beginning from the verb build. It's a present participle. It's something you're to be carrying out and doing. And the word building up here indicates that you're building on something that's already established. You're not starting a new work. You are building upon something that's already established. And that something is given to us in the context. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith. I'm going to talk about what exactly that means. But, but the word building here means to physically build something. But in the context of scripture, it's used metaphor in a metaphorical sense almost entirely. I think completely in every single use in the New Testament. This is a, this word building up means edifying. It means a spiritual building up of one another. So believers in this context, we know that because it's believers building themselves up and building and the building is to be built on their most holy faith. So this is most certainly a, a metaphorical meaning of the word building. 
Jude is talking about spiritual development and growth. You have a responsibility to carry this out. Now we'll say this is a participle, but it feeds into the imperative of keeping yourselves in the love of God. And therefore, this, this participle has an force of an imperative. So although it's not grammatically imperative, syntactically it's connected to the imperative. So in order to keep yourselves in the love of God, you've got to be building yourselves up on your most holy faith. So you have to do this in order to do that. That's what Jude is saying. That's how it's laid out in Scripture. Um, the New Testament uses the building metaphor quite a number of times. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, there Paul says, According to the grace of God, which is given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man is to be careful how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will indicate it, because it is revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Paul is talking about really the the the... Um, judgment of our works by our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a judgment unto, and unto like condemnation and eternity. This is a this is a judgment that the Lord will will carry out among His people to test the quality of our works of our lives, using that same idea, the same concept of building. There's one foundation, Jesus Christ. The apostles and the, and the New Testament prophets were part of that foundation, and now we are being built up. Our job is to be is to build ourselves up on that faith. And Paul's just warning us, be careful how you build and build with quality materials because the Lord's going to judge our work. Right? And, and so he's, he's motivating us, saying there are rewards. right? Uh, if, there, if you build in a quality fashion, there, you'll have something left to offer the Lord Jesus. And if not, everything will be burned up. I mean, your life's intention and purpose, uh, it will be a, a big waste. To, the, to say the extreme. You're not lost. You haven't lost your salvation. That's the, the, you know, uh, Paul's very specific about that. But, but it's that idea of building. So we need to build and we need to build carefully. Uh, Paul uses the metaphor of building in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 20 and 22. I'll just read that to you. So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being joined together, is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So we are being built together. God is not um, intending to use any kind of analogy of you like building your own home. So this is... Building together, we're growing together into one temple for the Lord. That's what He is doing. Even though we're separated church to church um, by miles or, or even by languages and culture, this is what the Lord is doing with His church in, in this age. He is building His church. He is building us into one temple for Him. That, that's the analogy that Paul is using. Colossians 2 6, he uses the same analogy. Of metaphors, he says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, 
having been firmly rooted and being built up in him and having been established in your faith, just as you were instructed and abounding with thanksgiving. So again, he used the analogy of building up and it's upon their faith. Right? First Peter 2, 4 um, also uses the same kind of metaphor. For he, there Peter says, and coming to him, that is to Christ, and coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. So you have a responsibility to be building yourselves up. There is, again, the individual responsibility, but then there is a collective responsibility in this. And you, you, Christians cannot do this without a local church. It is impossible to do this. So Christians must be part of the church. You're here this morning, so I'm kind of preaching to the choir, so to speak. But it's one of the reasons that you're here, because you cannot build yourself up in your most holy faith without the church. It's not an individualistic endeavor. Um, the lone Christian is the dead Christian. Right? And I don't mean that you lose your salvation. What I mean is you're, there's a, a vitality of life that is absolutely missing without other people, other Christians involved in your life. I mean, you just cannot, how can you carry out loving one another right? without the church? How can you die to yourself and serve others without the church? How can you learn what it's like to work out difficult relationships without the church? There's just so much growth that you bypass when people just say, I'm, I'm done with the church. I've been hurt. That's the last time. I don't have a need for it. You actually do have a great need for it, even if you don't recognize it. Scripture says that. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith absolutely requires the church. And look at what he's building upon. We need to mention this. He says, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. On your most holy faith. Now this could be, this faith could be what we call subjective faith. That is the faith that that you have in Jesus Christ. That is a re- responsive. Jude could be saying that. Is he saying, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. That is strengthening your own personal faith in Christ. Is that what he's talking about here? I, I don't I don't think so. I think he's talking about objective faith. He is saying, build yourselves up on the faith. And and that's why I'm I think that Jude is talking about objective faith here, is if you look again at the beginning of the letter, verse three, he says, I felt the necessity to write to you, exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith, once that was once for all handed down to the saints. So Jude's concern here is that believers cling to the word of God, cling to the truth, the faith that was once for all handed down for the for the uh, to the saints. And now that the, the saints have that faith, that body of doctrine revealed to us in the scriptures, the 66 books of the Bible and no more. Right? Those are what we cling to and we must build ourselves up in that most holy faith. This is this is the faith. Why does Jude say your faith? Why does he say your faith? Because that faith has been given to us. It's been given to the saints. It's now in your possession. But it's not subjective. This is objective. Another reason from the context that we know this is not talking about your personal faith in Christ, but the faith that God has given us is because he describes it as what? Your what? Your faith? What does he say? Your most holy faith. That's a superlative. Most holy. 
In other words, there's nothing holier than this faith right here. That doesn't describe my faith. That doesn't describe your faith. I have weaknesses in my faith. I have times of doubt, just like you do. Our faith is not holy, and it's certainly not most holy. So what is Jude saying? Building yourselves up on your most holy faith means going to that faith, the body of doctrine, the scriptures, and feeding from the word of God. That is absolutely necessary for you to be built up. That's why God commands Paul, or had Paul write on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the pastors, to command pastors to preach the word. Preach the word. You don't need a political sermon. You don't need me to tell you how to vote. We don't need any of that, because all that's temporary. That won't help edify you. It won't build you up. The word of God is what builds you up. You know, Jesus prayed for you, right? In John 17, he prayed to his father, Father, sanctify them. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. It's the truth that sanctifies us. This is the instrument. And, and it's, the, it's the reason that we devote so much time on Sunday morning to the word of God. It's to edify you. You don't need to hear from me, but you need to hear from the word of God. And we have so many competing voices today, we devote a significant amount of time to hearing from God. God's saying, you must get the word of God in your life. If you have the word of God in your life and you truly regenerate, you will grow. You will be building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Will there be times of discouragement? Sure. That's life in a fallen world. But the Lord is doing this work, not you. So you commit yourself to it. You put your hand at the plow and you ask the Lord to help you plow that that ground, the ground of your heart. And it's not just you individually, but it's, again, growing with the church. We are to be built up together, not just numerically. Right? That's easy to see, but we are being built up together, maturing in Christ-likeness. And that doesn't happen individually. It needs We need each other, but we need the Word of God. That's what we build upon. We build ourselves up upon our most holy faith, right? given to us, that body doctrine given us to us in the Scriptures. So how are we to be building ourselves up in our most holy faith? How are we to do that? Well, clearly it's through the Word of God. In, in Acts 20, 32, the Apostle Paul tells us that that God's Word actually does this. Besides what I've already mentioned in, in John 17, he says there in, in talking to the elders at Ephesus, he says, And now I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who have been sanctified. So it's the Word of God that builds us up. You can't just use it as a pillow. I remember, I remember uh, R.C. Sproul in a class I was sitting in one time said that. He's like, the word of God isn't addressed to your elbow. You can't use it as a pillow. Put your head on it and wake up in the morning and have all that information distilled. It doesn't work that way. You've, you've got to think about it. You've got to study it. You've got to learn it. Memorize it. Right? Get it into you. Right? And we have, we have such wonderful access to the word of God today. There's no excuse for us not not to get the Word of God into our lives. Um, And not only must pastors preach it, you are to long for it. Think about what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, laying aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, 
so that by it may you, be, you may grow and respect the salvation. Now, Paul is not encouraging us to be spiritual babies the rest of our lives. He's using an analogy that we all have seen. A little baby longs to be fed on a regular basis, longs for milk so that it may grow. That's the diet of a newborn baby is milk. Okay? So he's just using that analogy to say, you need to long for the word like that newborn baby longs for milk. Now, you're not to say a baby. Don't misunderstand the analogy that he's using. You're to grow and to mature, and you're to wrestle with some of the meat of, of Scripture, changing the analogy slightly, but you are to long for the Word of God like a baby longs for milk. And again, just to remind you that this is not a totally individualistic endeavor. You must do it individually, but it's a collective responsibility. Let me just read to you Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16, where Paul says, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body, being joined and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the properly measured working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So not only do we need the word of God to help us grow, we need the body. And we need every part functioning properly. Without each individual part working properly, the body isn't built up. So that means that every single believer working together, and that doesn't mean on Sunday, but it means in the life of the church, you have a gifting from the Lord to use, and if you don't use it, in some way, it shortchanges our congregation, and we are not built up in the way that we should be if you were using it. That, that's what Paul is saying. You have a, a role to play within the building up of the body of Christ. And you don't have to have a speaking gift like a pastor in order for that to be true. It's true of everybody. Even if you don't have a gift that, that people don't see a lot. It's, it's a behind the scenes. It's a one-on-one type of service and gifting. That, that still builds the body up. So to defend yourself against false teachers... You keep yourselves in the love of God and you're building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Thirdly, to defend yourselves against false teachers, you must be praying in the Holy Spirit. Look at the end of verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Again, praying is that participle and it carries the force of the imperative. It's, it's, it's a present uh, participle, meaning it's something we're to be ongoing and doing, ongo- you know, on, continuously doing. We, we're not to stop, and we know from Paul's writings that he actually commands us to pray without ceasing, which tells you that this, this type of prayer that's being commanded isn't just the type you do in uh, like uh, by yourself on a mountaintop or in your closet or on your knees. This is praying without ceasing. So it's, it's really just an attitude of always talking to your Lord and taking things to your Lord. Your mouth doesn't even have to move to, to do some of this praying. So it, it is a, shows a dependence upon him. Now, our, our Lord um, gives us the privilege and responsibility to go to him in prayer. And, and how is it that we think that the creator God is actually going to listen to you and to me? Like, really? I mean, have you, have you pondered that much? The creator God, the sustainer of the whole universe, um, of everything? We haven't even found the bounds of his creation yet. He sustains all that. And yet, he invites you to come to him. Why is that? It's because of Christ. All because of Christ. 
Hebrews 4 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us take hold of our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You're to boldly become a, boldly come to the throne of God's grace. And not because you read your Bible this morning or you went to church this week or, or any other good thing that you did, but simply because of Christ. He is... He is the one that paved the way for us to do that. He is our high priest. And because of what he did, and because he is a sympathetic high priest, being tempted in every way and yet without sin, he knows the temptations that you go through. Go to him. He will help. Now, Jude links the praying to God as, as a mandate for keeping yourselves in the love of God. That makes sense, right? To keep yourself in the love of God, to have a healthy relationship with God, you've got to be talking to God. You've got to be listening to God. That's that's the building yourselves up in your most holy faith. You're listening to God's word and you're doing more listening than you are in talking. But there's still a point where you need to talk to God. You need to express faith and trust in God. And that's what prayer is. It's an act of worship. But the point of debate here isn't just praying. Paul doesn't say just praying. He says what? Praying in the Holy Spirit. And actually, in, in the Greek text sometimes rearranges words in ways that don't um, don't make good English, and so that's why we don't translate them that way. But actually, in the Greek, it would be, it would be, in the Holy Spirit praying. There's an emphasis on in the Holy Spirit. Now, what does this mean? Well, you know, there, a lot of the commentators that I read on this are just really unhelpful. They do what I call they pontificate. Pontificate is a, it's a kind of a, a phrase that comes from the Pope. The Pope pontificates on doctrine. He doesn't have to explain it. He just has to announce it because they say that he has that authority. That's not true, but that's what they say. But a lot of the commentators pontificate. They'll just simply announce something and they won't explain much of the reasoning at all. So, so many of the commentators said, oh, this is praying in tongues. Really? I mean, a lot of them did that without much correlation at all. And if they did give any correlation, they give us, you know, just a slight cross-reference to 1 Corinthians uh, 14, 14, um, which, which in that context, you have to pay real close attention in that context where Paul is speaking about speaking in tongues and then praying. In, that, in Romans 14, Paul uses uh, the singular tongue to speak of false tongue, the false gift. He uses the plural of tongues to speak about the genuine gift of tongues. And not every Bible translation is, is carries through with the plurals and singulars accurately. So you have to make sure you're using a good translation. But that seems to be what Paul is doing. And if that is what he's doing, he's actually not commending praying in tongues. He's saying, what does it accomplish? It, it, it is um, to pray in a tongue does not accomplish anything. It is simply gibberish. Uh, let, let's, just for brevity, let me... Uh, Read MacArthur's explanation of 1 Corinthians 14 in that particular passage. He says, Paul continued to speak sarcastically about counterfeit tongues. So he used the singular tongue, which refers to the fake gift. He was speaking hypothetically to illustrate the foolishness and pointlessness of speaking in a static gibberish. 
the speaker could not understand? And what value is there in praying to God or praising God without understanding? No one can amen such nonsense, unquote. So Jude is not referring to, to speaking, to praying in tongues, the, the gibberish. And that's what it is. It's not a language. Don't let modern charismatic movement, even if you have dear friends involved in it, don't let them fool you. Right? Praying in tongues, right? or even the modern use of speaking in tongues is actually praying in tongues, but it's just gibberish. They don't know what they're praying. And do you think God needs them to pray in a different language for them to, to hear you? I mean, you just heard Hebrews 4, right? Come boldly before the throne to Christ, unto him. Did the writer of Hebrews say, oh yeah, you have to speak in tongues for God to understand you? No! I mean, what you know what praying in tongues does? It makes the person feel like if they're close to God. It's all internal. But it's gibberish. And I, I don't say that in any mocking sense. I say that strongly because there's so much going on out there. And, and some good men, some false teachers have confused the, the, the church on this very point. So praying in the Holy Spirit is not praying in tongues. Praying in the Holy Spirit is praying that little preposition in the Holy Spirit. Remember, you keep yourself in the love of God. When you keep yourself in the love of God, that's speaking about the realm of God's love. So to pray in the Holy Spirit is talking about praying in the realm of the Spirit, which means in accordance with His will, His desires, His direction. It's it's very similar to what um, Jesus says about praying in His name. So if you pray in the name of Jesus, you are praying in the Holy Spirit. They're, they're one and the same. It's just a different way of saying this, the same thing. You have to pray in accordance with with his will. How do we know his will? From the word of God. You allow the scriptures to inform his will. And where you don't know his will, then you just pray and ask for the Lord, ask for the spirit to pray in accordance with his will. Because the spirit intercedes for us when we know not how to pray. Romans 8 says that. The, the spirit intercedes. Not only does Christ intercede for you, but the spirit intercedes for you. And he prays And when you know not, know not how to pray. He prays for you. But you are called to pray in the Holy Spirit. There's an important passage that also speaks about praying in the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 6, I'm going to read that to you, Ephesians 6, 16. He says, in addition to all, having taken up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, also receive the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Listen, praying at all times with all prayer and petition in the Spirit. So it's part of the, uh, part of Paul's analogy or, or use of the, of the armor of God. But notice the close connection that he makes between the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and praying in the Spirit. He, he moves straight from one to the other. He says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times with prayer and petition in the Spirit. So the Word of God is needed to help us pray in the Spirit in accordance with His will. So praying in the Holy Spirit means praying in the sphere of the Spirit, prizing His value, submitting ourselves to His will, reliant upon His power. Um, we live in dangerous times, and we need to pray. And we need to pray in accordance with the Lord's will and in the Spirit. It, it is a necessity to help you 
avoid being pulled aside by false teachers and stumbling into your own sin as well. So, so ask yourself, how is your practice of prayer? Is it what God wants you to be? You can, yes, you can default and say, I don't pray as much as I should. Like everybody can say that. But sometimes we use that as a cop out not to do anything significant to make changes in that. We need to pray to our Lord and our God. He commands it. And it's necessary. It's a necessary part of your defense against false teachers. Praying in the Holy Spirit. You need to be doing it. You must be doing that. Well, there's one more critical spiritual discipline that you must employ to grow in spiritual maturity and defend yourself against false teachers. And that is to be waiting on the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. To be waiting on the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. From verse 21. What does it mean to wait? Uh, it's not a complicated uh, concept. It, it, here it's talking about waiting with eagerness. So it's not just waiting in general, like waiting anxiously. This is waiting in eager anticipation of something that is coming. It's related to the word hope. You're, you're waiting with hope. Um, and, and look at what he's waiting for. He says he commands it. He says we are to be waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does the word mercy mean? You often hear the word mercy explained as um, in, in the sense of you're not giving someone what they deserve. So I've explained it that way and others have. And, and it's accurate to a certain extent. So grace is giving someone something they don't deserve. Mercy is withholding something that someone does deserve, right? But I want to explain to you that mercy is is that, but it's more than that. It's much richer than that. And so this mercy that, that Jude is talking about is not just saying, waiting for the mercy, waiting for, you know, he's not saying, um, you're, you're going you're gonna to face a time of judgment, but you're going to need God's mercy. This, this, this kind of anticipation he's pointing to, this mercy is something Benevolent. This is something God gives to us. Um, it is a um, mercy. Is what his God is merciful, and He pours out His love upon us in His grace. Yes, but also in His mercy. Grace, God's grace, and God's mercy are are connected. They're they're inseparable. Where you have God's mercy, you have God's grace. And just to show you a little bit of how how these flow together, I'm going to give you just um. Uh, 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 an illustration from from Mark uh, five. So in Mark five, Jesus goes to the region of the of the Gerasenes, and and there he meets a man that's possessed by demons, by a, a legion. There's many of them, right? Probably thousands of in this one man, and they made this man so strong that when and he, they drove him crazy, people tried to bind him with chains. He was able to break the chains. No one could bind him. So kind of a, in a sense. Um, sort of like Samson, right? He had that kind of strength. No one could could bind him or, or hold him back. Jesus comes to the area. These demons are plaguing. The man is screaming. Jesus cast out these demons from this man into the swine. The swine run down and drown in the lake. And there's a big big snafu about that. And people say, we want you to leave Jesus rather than, you know, it's just like the total opposite reaction. And as Jesus gets ready to leave, this man who Jesus rescued wants to go with him he's like man i'm i'm out of here you saved me i'm i'm it's like i i'm your slave for life wherever you go i'll go but jesus didn't let him i want to read to you a portion of that and as he was getting into the boat that is jesus the man who had been demon possessed was pleading with him that he might accompany him 
He did not let him. That is, Jesus did not let him. And he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy upon you. God didn't say, Jesus didn't say how he had grace upon you, how he had mercy upon you. So it wasn't just that the man's sins were forgiven, that he didn't receive the punishment he deserved. He, he actually received this wonderful grace gift of, of these demons being cast out and, and being a, a, a true worshiper of God. So mercy is so much richer than just withholding what someone deserves. It's compassionately meeting their need, whatever that need might be. That's God's mercy. And, and we're going to touch on mercy here in verses 22 and 23. Uh, Jude's going to return to that idea. And so we need to be waiting in anticipation of this mercy as well as practicing mercy, which we'll talk about in those verses when we get there. Now, I want to talk just for a moment, because he says here, he says, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's all tied to our Lord Jesus Christ. But but listen, why does he say waiting for? Don't Haven't Christians already experienced God's mercy? Like this demoniac who was rescued, he experienced God's mercy, received God's mercy. Haven't, haven't Christians already received God's mercy? And the answer is yes. Yes, we have. So Jude must be talking about a different kind of mercy or a different aspect of that mercy. He's not talking about initial salvation mercy. He's talking about something in the future, a mercy in the future. He says, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So why would we need to wait for this mercy? Because it's a mercy of the future. And you see this to eternal life. He's connecting it with the idea of, of to eternal life, having mercy in Jesus Christ to eternal life. In other words, Christians, there's a sense in which you have eternal life right now. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life but you don't have it completely, not fully. You're not glorified. You're, you're still in a body of sin. That, that unless the Lord comes back early, your body's going to die suffering the consequences of sin. So you don't have eternal life complete in the complete sense that God's going to provide it. That's going to be in the future. So this mercy that, that uh, Jude is talking about is that mercy of complete he have, receiving complete eternal life, of having that totally consummated, right? Where it's everything together in in our life with Christ. So you receive initial mercy when your sins are forgiven and given the Holy Spirit. You receive initial mercy when you become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But there is an aspect of mercy of God's mercy which you have not received yet that lies in the future. That is an eschatological. Uh, Mercy, that mean, eschatological meaning in the, in the last times. And, and it seems that Jude is pointing to that, the fact that he says the Lord Jesus Christ. He just doesn't say we're waiting on the mercy of God to be revealed. He says the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. When will you see that? Well, I believe we'll see it in, in the rapture of the church. When you see the Lord, you will be made to be like him. You will receive that mercy. Be completely glorified in him. So this isn't just a, a mercy of God. It is a mercy of God. But I think Jude is pointing to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ because you are going to see Christ before you 
are ever in heaven with the Father. So you'll be made like him. So this is the mercy that, that Jude points us. We are to be waiting. In other words, there's an anticipation and hope, and a hope that does not disappoint. The Lord is going to complete the work that he has begun in your life, and he's going to complete it when you see Christ. So this this uh, similar idea that uh, Jude is, is relaying, Paul relates to Titus. And, and we looked at that, I read it earlier, but I want to go back to, to Titus 2, Titus 2.13. And, and there we're told the grace of God instructs us and has us looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. In that context, he's also tying together the, the blessed hope, looking for the blessed hope and the peering of our glory, of our, the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, with the concept of glorification. He, he'll make us, he'll redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession. That's God's mercy that does that. And that, that's the completion of the process. And you can enter eternity, and you can spend eternity with Lord, our Lord and God because of the mercy which you have received from Jesus Christ to purify, to cleanse you, to complete what you have begun. And that wonderful mercy is what he is now holding with open hands to all, to anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Hmm? You today, there might be someone here today who has not received the mercy of God in the initial sense of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And you can do that today by trusting in him, placing your faith in him, recognizing that he is your life. He is your all in all. You need him to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You cannot enter into eternity without him, without his work, without receiving his mercy. And he freely gives you the offer to receive that mercy he holds his hand out and says won't you receive my mercy and and think about think about why would you turn that mercy down why would you reject that offer of mercy that will you will be condemned even more severely for having rejected god's offer of mercy don't reject such a wonderful gift and offer which god provides So keep yourself, to, to defend yourself against false teachers, you keep yourself in the love of God, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. These things are essential for us to be carrying out and doing. You probably heard the phrase that uh, uh, you know the, the, the best defense is a good offense. Right? In, in a sense, God is giving you the, the mandate, the means, the, the practices to have a good offense keeps you spiritually healthy and therefore you are not open to attack by the false teachers. Okay? That's what the Lord is doing. That's his design. Carry these things out. These disciplines need to be a present reality in your life. If they are, you will not fall prey to false teachers and you can help others develop these. And again, it's that, that nature, that community nature, that we need to be helping one another. Right? And if this, these aren't present realities in your life, then repent 
of, of the disobedience and ask the Lord to help you begin implementing these and putting these practices um, into your life. And, and don't procrastinate. Right? I, I, God wants you to do something imperfectly um, rather than not do it at all. Right? So just start. You don't know how to pray? Just start. Right? Go to your word. You don't know how to study the Bible? Just start. Right? There's helps out there. You can come to me and I'll, I'll help as well. But start. Right? Five minutes of prayer is better than nothing. Two minutes of prayer is better than nothing. Right? But you shouldn't stay there. Keep growing. God wants you to be growing in these. And as you grow in these, it will protect you from, uh, these things will protect you from the false teachers that are that are out there. So let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we just praise you and exalt you that you are our God, our rock, our fortress, that you have not left us as orphans, but given us clear instructions in your word as to how we should live and to live in such a way where we are victoriously living for you by your strength and power. Oh, God, help us to be faithful, help us to grow, help us to keep ourselves in the love of God, to be building ourselves up in our most holy faith, to be praying in the Holy Spirit, and to be waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, to eagerly anticipate that. Use these things in our Lord to to grow us, to develop us as believers, to into maturity, and to protect us from the false teachers who seek to harm us and lead us astray. We thank you that you are victorious. You are the God of truth. And in the end, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that you are Lord and you will see your people safely home. You will keep us. You will complete the work that you have begun. We praise you for that. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.